Hi folks, Steve here. Hope you're well. When the Great Depression hit in 1929, jobs disappeared by the millions. Unemployment lines and bread lines became pretty common, the economy was badly wounded, and without jobs, without the machinery that made money move through the economy, its chances of recovery were pretty slim. So as part of the Second New Deal, and driven by a presidential order from Franklin Roosevelt, the Works Progress Administration, or the WPA, was signed into law on May 6, 1935. Now, the WPA immediately attracted a firestorm of criticism. The abbreviation soon came to mean we putter along, or we piddle around, or whistle, piss, and argue, and its symbol, at least the one used by its enemies, became men leaning on shovels doing no actual work. There was a perception that WPA workers didn't really work. They just leaned on their shovels and collected their paychecks at taxpayer expense. A Senate committee found that while there was certainly some foundation for those claims, it wasn't universal. And in fact, the WPA's Division of Investigation, which was committed to preventing government corruption, was so good at its task that Congress failed to find a single issue that amounted to anything worth pursuing. Now, a lot of the criticisms centered around how projects and the funding for them got distributed nationally. At the time, the South was the poorest region of the United States, and as such, it received 75% less per capita than the rest of the country in terms of public works funding and federal relief. The critics claimed that Roosevelt's Democratic Party could count on support from the Democratic South already, but that the less supportive states in the West couldn't be counted on, so they got more funding as an incentive to swing to the Democratic left. At least that's what the WPA detractors claimed. Now, like everything, there are two sides to every story. While there was undoubtedly waste and inefficiency in the WPA, and by the way, show me a corporation today, or a government for that matter, that doesn't have those, the organization nevertheless did some pretty cool things. First, they created a government machine that put people back to work, in the process reigniting the economy and creating self-respect for millions of unemployed people. Second, they actually did some spectacular things, much of which is still being used today. WPA workers built more than 620,000 miles of streets and over 10,000 bridges, as well as tunnels, airports, train stations, and thousands upon thousands of homes. They built the infrastructure for the massive Tennessee Valley Authority, a federally owned power system that provides electricity to Tennessee, Alabama, Mississippi, Kentucky, and parts of Georgia, North Carolina, and Virginia. It's the sixth largest power company in the country, and it receives no taxpayer support, even though it's a federal entity. But they built more than that. WPA workers built the famous, iconic Griffith Observatory in L.A., Midway and LaGuardia airports, Dinosaur Park in South Dakota, Oregon's Timberline Lodge, made famous by the movie The Shining, and San Antonio's famous Riverwalk. They also created the familiar, recognizable, homey, slightly rustic look of all the nation's national parks. But there's another part of the Works Progress Administration that most people have never heard of, and I think it's kind of important in its own right. It was called Federal Project Number 1, and it had one goal, to protect and preserve the artistic and cultural elements of American society. It had five divisions, the Historical Records Survey, 
the Federal Theater Project, the Federal Music Project, the Federal Art Project, and the one I'm going to discuss, the Federal Writers Project. Let me be clear. The other four were incredibly important and yielded works that researchers still haven't had time to go through completely. The Historical Records Survey, for example, created a massive archive of more than 2,300 interviews with former slaves detailing their lives during that terrible period. Through the federal theater and art projects, theater and music groups toured throughout the United States and gave almost a quarter of a million performances. Through archaeological investigations sponsored by the WPA, one participant in which was anthropologist, author, essayist, and poet Lauren Isley, professional archaeology emerged in the United States, driving a rediscovery of the critical importance of pre-Columbian Native American cultures. The fifth segment of Federal Project Number 1 was the Federal Writers Project. It was created to support writers and editors during the Great Depression and to support writing as a craft. Roosevelt recognized that people who worked with the written word, writers, teachers, librarians, lawyers, and a few others, were at a disadvantage because they often had no trade-related skills that made them valuable as workers on the many infrastructure projects that the WPA made possible. It turned out to be a good decision. Nearly 7,000 people were employed as writers and editors during the project's lifetime, earning between $20 and $25 per week and publishing more than 275 books, 700 pamphlets, and 340 articles, leaflets, and radio scripts. The best-known work products that came out of the Federal Writers Project, other than the now-famous writers who got their start there and who I'll talk about in a minute, were the 55 books in what came to be known as the American Guide series. Each guide covered a single state in exquisite detail, as well as the territories of Puerto Rico and Alaska and a few selected cities. They discussed each state's history, descriptions of every city and town, local culture, recommended automobile tours to see the state's important attractions, and a collection of photographs. As you most likely know, I live in Vermont, and thanks to a digital visit to the Library of Congress, I was able to download a scanned copy of the Guide to Vermont, which is, I can only say, charming and quaint, and yet at the same time, still remarkably accurate. Here's a quote from the first section, the general background. Before President Coolidge made the name of our state known to modern people, and by the way, Coolidge was from Vermont, we were so far in the past as to be practically invisible. Those were the days when you gave your address to a saleswoman in New York as Arlington, Vermont, and she asked, her pencil hovering over the page, yes, and what state, please? Thinking Vermont, we use wrathfully to imagine, was some fancy name for a new development in the suburbs. Nowadays, when you tell New York salespeople that you live in Vermont, they say, oh, how nice, I envy you. This change is not due to any sudden discovery of our virtues. It's caused by the advent into fashionable favor of winter sports, Vermont sounding like a place where you can wear ski pants, and the Depression. The shock of that last event made a good many Americans turn disillusioned away from the future that wasn't so near as they thought, and perhaps was going to be very different from what they hoped, back toward the past still jogging with slow steadiness on its horse and buggy back road way. 
Not to be disagreeable, just to be frank, some of these yearners after the past rub us the wrong way with their praise of what we ruefully know to be mere narrowness and stagnation, qualities from which we struggle hard to escape, they being, like bragging to a Californian and real estate inflation to Florida people, the special temptation of our special way of life. Now, granted, that was published in 1937. But most Vermonters I know who have been around for a few generations just shrug their shoulders and say, yeah, what's your point? Well, I mentioned that a lot of writers got their start with the Federal Writers Project, although some of them weren't proud of the fact. For example, John Cheever, whose work won a Pulitzer Prize and a National Book Award, was ashamed of the fact that he worked as a junior editor in the Washington office of the Federal Writers Project. And while he once described his job as fixing the sentences written by some incredibly lazy bastards, his work for the WPA gave him the background he needed to write some of the most important scenes in his novel, The Wapshot Chronicle, which won the National Book Award and was included as one of the 100 most important novels of the 20th century. Poet W.H. Auden's quote about the WPA Writers' Project sort of says it all. The Federal Writers' Project is one of the noblest and most absurd undertakings ever attempted by a state. Whatever the case, a lot of our most treasured writers came out of the program, absurd or not. They include John Cheever, Studs Terkel, whose interviews with working people in America remain among the most treasured radio programs in the country and formed the basis for his amazing book, Working. Anthropologist Lauren Isley, whom you've heard me mention many times in this podcast. Saul Bellow. Ralph Ellison, who wrote The Invisible Man. Eudora Welty, who also doubled as a photographer for the American Guide series in Mississippi. John Steinbeck author and anthropologist Zora Neale Hurston, and poet Margaret Walker. It's so easy to criticize projects like the WPA and its various sub-projects from a political perspective. Make work, we piddle around, waste of taxpayer money, left-leaning, communist conspiracy, politically and geographically unfair. And I'm sure that if I were to dig deep enough— I could find examples here and there of every single one of those within the historical record of the WPA. But then I look at the sun setting over the Griffith Observatory when I'm in L.A., or at the extraordinary network of magnificent national parks that we treasure, or at the Riverwalk in San Antonio, or the incredibly kitschy little time warp called Dinosaur Park in South Dakota, and I shake my head in wonder. Then I listen to or read the first-person accounts of former slaves and what their lives were like, or read the American Guide series, or marvel at the extraordinary writings of someone like Lauren Isley, and I feel kind of small. The WPA and the Federal Writers Program may have been flawed, but there are no flaws in what they gave birth to. I'm good with that. Hey, thanks for dropping by. I'm Steve Shepard, the host of the Natural Curiosity Project, where we're committed to the idea that curiosity leads to discovery, discovery leads to knowledge, knowledge leads to insight, and insight leads to understanding. In every episode, we explore some topic that piqued our curiosity enough to make us want to share it with you. I hope you enjoy the journey. And if you did, I'd appreciate it if you'd leave a comment over at iTunes or SoundCloud, wherever you listen to the podcast. Thank you very much. We'll see you in the next episode. Thank you.